You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So we have some new people. Most of you don't know me because... Or not most of you, a few of you don't know me because you've never seen me up here before. The last time I taught Sunday school was January something or other, January 19th, I think. And uh, then we went into the God Wrote a Book series that Jim is teaching, and we will get back to that once he actually has a break. He was supposed to get a break after when he stopped the last time, when he stopped teaching God Wrote a Book, and then the world fell apart, and he ended up teaching streaming every Sunday, so... Um, so that's the story there, and he'll probably give more illumination as he from the pulpit. But we were studying the book of Daniel, and we had gotten through the introduction, and I was ready to start Daniel one one. But I, I think it might be um, helpful to kind of do a quick review. So Daniel wrote a book. Okay, we're done reviewing. <laughs> we um, we talked about the fact that uh, well, I'll just kind of skim over. What we, what we looked at in um, 14 pages of text, <laughs> 15 pages. So the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. by the prophet named in the book. Um, it, was off, it was written in the third person, which indeed many of the books on the Old Testament were written in the third person. In fact, we see the Lord himself alternating between the first and the third person in some of his, in, in the writings of Christ and of the Lord and, the, and of the Father. So modern liberal scholars, we talked about the fact that modern liberal scholars follow the lead of a second century heretic named Periphery who looked at the prophecies in Daniel and said, these are too accurate to be prophecies. He must have written this as a history after they happened. And that was his thesis. He had no science, as they call it, to back it up. But he was convinced that these, these prophecies were so accurate they, they, they couldn't have been prophecies. They must have been written during the Maccabean period um, as a historical record of what took place that Daniel predicted. Um, so Daniel lived, he lived in the 6th century before Christ, uh, around the same time of that period of time. Um, the construction on the Acropolis in Athens began. The Mayan civilization was flourishing in Mexico. Aesop wrote his fables. Uh, Confucius and Buddha lived around this time. Greek art, Greek art began to truly excel. The Phoenicians made the first known sea voyage around Africa. And the Greeks, and this is very important for pasta lovers and sauce, tomato sauce and all that stuff. The Greeks in, introduced the olive tree into Italy. So Daniel describes events of the second century before Jesus, especially the period between 175 and 164 B.C., with such precision that the critics believe that it had to have been written during or after that period, during the time of the Maccabees in between the Old and New Testament. Supposedly, the purpose for writing Daniel at that time was to inspire God's people onto victory during the Maccabean Wars. We went through all of the difficulties with that thesis that the book was actually written. Some of the problems were the words that were in it and, again, the accuracy. There wasn't much for the critics to hang their hats on, but it was enough for them to write a plethora of books about how Daniel couldn't have been written early. It had to have been written later. <laughs> so there were also 
concerns, and, and one of the reasons I'm going to breeze over this a little bit is because Kootenai community records everything we do now, much to my dismay. And so you can actually go and review the, uh, the earlier two lessons that I gave on Daniel and get this history in much more detail if you'd like to do that. Um, so three times Daniel is mentioned by his sixth century counterpart, Ezekiel, as an example of righteousness in Ezekiel 14, 14, 14, 20, and 28, 3. Those two were contemporaries. They were different ages, but they were contemporaries. Um, and so Daniel is indeed the writer of this book. There are critics who say he didn't even write the book. They postulate that the Daniel spoken of here was a 1,400 years before this Daniel with almost no evidence whatsoever. But when you have a plan to upend God's word, you'll do it any way you can. You'll do whatever works for you. <laughs> so the date of the book, late 2nd century, uh, the late 2nd century is the fake date. The real date is the early 6th century. Manuscript evidence, there's evidence, there's manuscripts discovered at Qumran, especially the four Elysium found in uh, cave 4Q, which date from the Maccabean period, which make it very unlikely that the book was written during the time of the Maccabees, since it would have taken a, quite a bit of time for it to have been accepted and included in the canon, propagated. It's not like today. Today you can send an email, and it's in southern Ukraine in 1.7 seconds. Back then, if you wrote a letter and you sent it from Egypt to Turkey, what we call modern-day Turkey, it would have taken months to get there. So these kinds of things did not propagate the same way they do today. Um, the linguistic evidence, um, Aramaic, Daniel's Aramaic demonstrates grammatical evidence for an early date far more closely associated with the 6th and 7th centuries B.C. than with the 2nd century B.C. His Aramaic was an earlier Aramaic, clearly. Persian. The Persian loanwords in Daniel do not argue against an early date for the book since Daniel, who lived under the Persians, would have placed the material in its final form in the final part of his life. Um, Persian loanwords, and we'll, we'll talk about them, we'll actually look at the concerns that the critics have all the way through this book and answer them as we go through it. <laughs> Four of the 19 Persian words are not translated well by Greek renderings of about 100 BC, implying that their meaning was lost or drastically changed, meaning that it is very unlikely that Daniel was written in 165 BC. The Persian words which are cited in Daniel are specifically old Persian words dating from around 300 B.C. and earlier. This argues against a 165 date. The three Greek loan words in Daniel do not need to argue for a late date since there may well have been Greek writing prior to Plato, 370 B.C., where these words could have been used and since they are the, given the names of musical instruments which are often circulated far beyond national boundaries. And since Greek words are found in the Aramaic documents of Elephantine dated to the 5th century B.C. I should be moving along here so you guys can keep track. Okay, we'll get, it. We'll get caught up again. The themes of the prominence of angels, the last judgment, the resurrection of the dead, and the establishment of the final kingdom are not themes that are limited to later apocryphal times, apocryphal literature, um, but have their roots in earlier biblical literature and even in books like Zechariah. 
Um, and then literary evidence, the reason the development of history seems to stop with Antiochus IV, Epiphanes is not necessarily because that was when the writer lived. It is probably for literary theological reasons. He best foreshadows the Antichrist to come. And then predictive evidence, the fourth empire in Daniel 2, we'll look at that, is not of the Greeks as those who hold to a late date. This is substantiated by the vision in chapter 7, where the second empire is not Media and the third empire is not Persia, but is Greece, which divides into four. And we'll see all of that in detail as we get to the predictive sections of Daniel. Um, at times, this was an interesting bit of trivia, communist governments prohibited preaching from the book of Daniel because it reveals God's knowledge of the future, and it shows that in the end, the Lord God and his people win. And they didn't want that information propagated. Oh, my. It's Really, nothing changes. People, human nature is the same. It's the same today as it was hundreds and thousands of years ago. Daniel contains more fulfilled prophecies than any other book in the Bible. In New Testament prophecy, Daniel is referred to more than any other Old Testament book. And so then I think we had the, the location. Here is um, the Syrian desert. As you can see, this is, there's Babylon and uh, all of those geographic locations. We looked at that and then set against the ancient Babylon location where it was right in the middle of Iraq. The, one of the other interesting bits of trivia, if you will, was the size of Babylon. When you read about an empire, what comes to mind? Gigantic, huge, earth-encompassing. No, it was about the size of Texas, if I remember right. Yeah, it controlled nearly 130... No, it wasn't even as big as Texas, I'm sorry. It controlled about 194,000 square miles, which is about 73% of the size of Texas, or the size of the states of Idaho and Nevada combined. That was the Babylonian Empire. Now, in that day, that was huge. It was a lot of land. It still is a lot of land, actually. So the Babylonian Empire of, of millennia, actually it endured for millennia, and it had massive ups and downs in both size and influence. It was founded about 2300 B.C. It grew in size under Hammurabi between 1790 B.C. and 1750. And then in the Neo-Babylon period, the Babylonian period that Daniel was involved with, which spanned the years 626 B.C. to 539, it became the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time. Then we looked at all the, we looked at a whole bunch of events and those slides and that, uh, that audio is available online. And that ended us December 29th, 19, yeah, 19, <laughs> 2019. Yeah, it was a long time ago. So when Daniel entered, when Daniel arrived in Babylon, he would have been a teenager, probably mid-teenager years. His life spanned about 85 years, and in this, late in his life, he penned this book. It is the most, as I said, the most quoted book in the New Testament and has, as I said, more fulfilled prophecies than any other book. Since Daniel was a government official first and a prophet second, the book is placed in the Hebrew writings rather than in the prophets section. Um, and we talked about earlier scholar, or early scholars um, rejecting it because it was too accurate. Um, the message, the clear message of the book is that of God's sovereignty over angels, principalities, powers, nations, and human rulers. God is sovereign, as we know, over everything, but specifically these five things. 
Nothing escaped God's hand in this writing. There are miracles in chapters 1 through 6 and significant prophecies in chapters 7 through 12. So some, some of the objections we'll look at, that we're going to look at uh, is that the author is not Daniel, the Daniel we find in the book, and there are detailed objections that I laid out in a list that we went through. Um, see if we can get to that. I should have been plugging this thing along. These are all online for you to look at. Seventeen, there it is. So, some of those objections are listed up there, and uh, actually there were two pages of them. Page one, 200 BC, the prophets was added, and those are all online for you to look at if you would like to do that. Um, we, we need to understand that the liberal um, critics who reject the authenticity of Daniel start with many presuppositions. The first and most glaring is that predictive prophecy is impossible. They must believe that you cannot predict the future in order to reject Daniel. That's one of the first things they need to, to adhere to, if you will. The second is the, predict, is the rejection of detailed prophecy. The third is rejection of miracles. Rejection of his canonicity, I should have said, is one. Detailed prophecy, miracles. Fourth is textual problems. Five is problems of language. And six is alleged historical inaccuracies. And we'll look at each one of those as we go through the book. We'll peg each of the critics' concerns, what they were, and how they are answered. So much more detail will be added to these as we study the text. So, and then I'm going to finish up with this, actually right there. We adhere to the historical grammatical method of interpretation of the Bible. We believe that in order to understand the Bible, you must read it in the historical setting, understanding the words as the people of that time would have understood the words. Which You would understand my chagrin when I thought that Dodge actually existed in New Testament times when I found out that John the Baptist's head was brought to the king on a charger. Was it a 68, my favorite year? No, it couldn't have been. If you go back and understand the King James, a charger is a platter, and when you look at the original Greek word, the interpretation, the interpretation is from a Greek word, which means a plate or a platter. So that's what I'm talking about. You have to understand the, the, uh, the text as the people who it was written to understood it. That's the historical grammatical method. There are four methods. The first one is the historical grammatical. Second is the tropological or moral method. The third is the allegorical, which is the best way to abuse a text I've ever seen. And the fourth is the anagogical, which is the second best way to abuse a text that I've ever seen. And we went through each of those, and that's all online. So then we quickly talked about the principles we would use, and I will just highlight a couple of phrases from each of the five uh, seven or ten principles we've got here. They must, the words of the Bible must be interpreted based on the intention of the author and not on the presuppositions or the suppositions of the reader. Number two, interpretation must be based upon the context of the passage in question. There's near context, paragraph context, section context, and even the context understanding the author themselves. 
Number three, the Bible must be interpreted literally, allowing for the normal use of words and figurative language. For example, a normal method of explaining that the Word of God is perfect is found in Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. A figurative way of saying the same thing would be like comparing God's Word to illumination. Thus we see in Proverbs 6.23, for example, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So those are examples of that. Often we see that in Scripture. Number four, use the Bible to interpret itself. It is its best interpreter. Yes. Yes. If literal sense made perfect sense, then all other sense is nonsense. And often... Unfortunately, we humans want the Bible to say something it doesn't. So we adopt the nonsense version. And uh, especially when it is attempting, God is, through his word, is attempting to point out our sin. Ah, it's not sin. That's just fill in the blank. Number four, use the Bible to interpret itself. Uh, so when in the Old Testament... Interpret the verse in question in context. Only after this is accomplished, only after this is accomplished, should one go to the New Testament for further insight. Some verses are very hard to understand and must be understood both in the local context and in the greater context. Um, and we we just, I, I detailed the, one of the sections that Jim had just taken us through. How long has it been since we were in Hebrews 6? I guess January. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number five. Interpretation is not application. And so in Matthew chapter 9, for example, an historical event occurred which, in which Jesus was seen eating with a tax collector. He was taken to task by the Pharisees. His response to the Pharisees was a historical statement that occurred in real time. His statement rebuked them. An application for us today would be, might be that we, when we hear someone or see someone doing something contrary to Scripture, we lovingly and compassionately approach them seeking either their salvation or restoration. It is not an opportunity for one-upmanship and lording it over others. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is almost always a function of our attitude and our own heart. Uh, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to grow someone, help someone, or show them how much we know about Scripture and how much they need to be like us? Yes. Number six, be careful not to misunderstand the distinctions between Israel and the church, between the Old Testament and New Testament, and etc. And finally... And very importantly, be aware of the type of literature you are reading in the scriptures. In the Bible, you will find law, narrative. Oops, I was there. You will find law, uh, narrative, wisdom, poetry, gospel, parable, epistle, and apocalyptic uh, literature. And so then we discussed some of those and what they were like and how they worked. And then we, um, and then, and just to give you an idea, there's, there's some of the subtexts of all of that. And then we finished, and here we are today. With a, a, Are there any questions about anything I just ra rapidly rushed through before we start actually into the text of the book of Daniel? <clears throat> so let's take the book of Daniel and let's read the first chapter together. What a wonderful book. It's the best book in the Bible. I know 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians used to be, but we're not studying 2 Corinthians anymore. 
We're studying Daniel, and it's the best book in the Bible. Number In, in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, with discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans, Babylonians. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, to be distinguished from Belshazzar, who was a king. Belteshazzar, and the name to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego, or Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, he said this, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Imagine that, losing your head for feeding the wrong stuff. That's pretty severe. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel said this, Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given vegetables, some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, that is the overseer. He listened to Daniel in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them, all not, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conquerors, conjurers <laughs> who were in his realm, in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. There's a ton in that first chapter. And what I'm looking forward to when I finally get to be meet the Savior, is I want to ask Daniel what's missing. What's missing? Because there's, I mean, Persia, the Babylonian Empire, overran Jerusalem, Israel, and took everybody captive. And we there's more in other parts of Scripture about that, about how that was accomplished. <laughs> but so much information is missing that just interests me. <laughs> how did they capture it? How did they determine 
which were the best young men, <clears throat> young people to, to take into service. Where did they take them? How did they take them? Just a ton of questions. But at any rate, that'll be for some time in the future. Um, and I'll ask them questions myself. So let's look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So in the summer of 605 B.C., the two extant superpowers of the world at that time clashed. Egypt and Babylon met in battle at Carchemish. Babylon defeated Egypt, and the armies of Egypt retreated south. They went home. By late summer, Nebuchadnezzar had taken control of the city of Jerusalem. In mid-August... Nebuchadnezzar's father, King Nabopolassar, died in Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar stopped what he was doing. He hurried home to claim the crown. You had to be present to claim the crown. You didn't get voted in. And uh, he took with him some of the sacred vessels of the temple and some of the best of the Jewish young men. Among those captives were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The vessels he took were placed in the temple of Marduk, in the temple complex of uh, Esagila, 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 excuse me, which was set up to honor Marduk and the, who was the main Babylonian god. This would have been done to celebrate the victory given to them, they believed, by Marduk and to humiliate the god of the Israelites. So here in verse one, where do you think the critics began their objections? In verse one. <laughs> well, good for them. Here in verse 1 is one of the first objections that the critics have. We must remember that because the book of Daniel is the most quoted in the New Testament and has the most fulfilled prophecies of any other book, it will be attacked by, on every angle, at every opportunity, by liberal critics. The statement is made that Nebuchadnezzar was not yet king when this happened. And Daniel said, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Well, he wasn't king yet. He hadn't gone home and taken the crown from his, his, past, his father who had passed. He only found out about his father's death and in August and returned home to claim the kingship. Daniel is simply using the narrative sense in what is called a proleptic statement. That is, he used the title of king in anticipation of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed ascend to the throne. This is common language that has been used throughout history. Another example would be the statement, President Calvin... President Calvin Coolidge was a storekeeper as a boy. Now, was he president when he was a storekeeper as a boy? Do you object to that narrative sense? No, and neither do I, but the critics do. He was most certainly not president when he was a boy, but the title attends him and is what he is remembered by. As in many cases, we will see the answers to the critics' objections are so simple as to be humorous, often silly. But, answer, they must be. So that, that's the beginning of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, who became king of Babylon, attacked, besieged Jerusalem, or, uh, fought Egypt and won. And then in that section of the world, he um, scooped up all of the temple gold and, and utensils and things like that to take back to his God. And he took the best of the best and brightest in, in uh, Israel and took them back to Babylon to improve the lot of Babylon, if you will. Any questions about verse 1? Yes. yes. You say that the Babylonians and the Egyptians met to fight in Israel. I did? Carchemish. Pardon? Carchemish. They met in the Battle of Carchemish. It wasn't in Israel. <laughs> okay. 
Where's Carchemish? Okay, one of my flip, one of my answers, one of my statements to you has always been that I will not give flippant answers if I don't know the answer. I think Carchemish probably isn't in Texas, but I'm not sure where it's at. So I'll look that up and I'll get back to you. But it wasn't in Israel. If I said that, it was a mistake. They met on on the battlefield in Carchemish. My guess is is that was an area that both of them were trying to take control of. But we'll look it up. Where is I will report back to you, sir. That makes me wonder if the Babylonians are just passing through and through Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to get very far into the book of Daniel, so it'll be easy to come back and answer this. Questions of geography are always fun, especially nowadays when you can just look it up in about three tenths of a second. Any other questions? It's on the Euphrates River, which means it's back in Iran. So that's still not Texas, is it? No. Okay. It's in Iran. So I don't know if I can get back to my map, but I can kind of give you a, for those of us who are not, haven't got that all memorized, um, it's, he wanted to know where Carchemish was and why they met on the battlefield there. Was it, and was one of them trying to conquer the area or et cetera? So at any rate, it was, in, it was near Iran. And I'll, I'll have some maps and some information. Yeah. Oh, I've actually, did I lose my? Cool thing. Thank you. Yeah, it was an Egyptian held city. Okay, so that's most of the answer, but I'll get back to the rest of it next week. What do I Yeah, yeah. So he, he took the time to go over to Jerusalem and scoop up, probably knowing that it was one of the more flourishing cities that probably had lots of good stuff to steal. You know, if, if, uh, if this area was taken over by an enemy invader, more than likely they wouldn't plunder Clark Fork, but they would plunder Spokane. Pardon? We're safe. <laughs> We're probably not safe either, but any other questions, Nathel? Egypt, yeah. The sa- yeah. He brought the kids to Shinar, which is a colloquialism for Babylonia. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So contrary to Nebuchadnezzar's belief that his God had conquered Jehovah, the fact was Jehovah himself had allowed, allowed Nebuchadnezzar to win that battle and to plunder Judah. There are companion verses that give basically the same information uh, about this against him. In his days, 2 Kings 24.1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three... Oh, by the way. Second Kings calls Nebuchadnezzar the king. The critics didn't take any time to object to that, by the way. Okay, back to what we were saying. Verse of, the verse of Scripture says, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant 
for three years and then turned and rebelled against him. Second Chronicles 36, 5 through 7. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon to put them in his temple at Babylon. And then, uh, thus began the 70 years captivity spoken of both by Daniel in chapters 9, in chapter 9, 1 and 2, and in Jeremiah chapter 25, 11. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazuerus, the median of median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So Daniel explains that that time period was the 70-year period. And then Jeremiah 25, 11. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. See, it's those kind of predictions that the critics can't endure. Why not 69? Why not 58? Why not 72? Why not just an indeterminate number like we would do because we don't know anything about the future? They predicted it specifically or wrote about it specifically. Israel had prostituted herself to the gods of the different nations and as such had not kept any or at least had kept very few of the commands of God. One of those commands of God was to let the land rest every how many years? Wow, what a coincidence. Every 70 years. Nor have they kept the Sabbath day and the sabbatical year. Jeremiah 34 <laughs> Uh, verses 12 through 22. I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bonding, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and who has served you six years. You shall send him out free from you, but your forefathers did not obey me nor incline their ear to me. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which was called by my name, yet you turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant, and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your male servant and female servants. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor." Let me stop there for a minute. We set them free, Lord. We follow the specific terms of Scripture. We set them free. We did take them back into captivity, but we'd followed. How many times does that happen? Continuing, behold, the Lord says, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to, be, to, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, and I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, which is what covenant means in in Hebrew. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. And their dead bodies will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, 
and in the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has gone away from you. Behold, I am going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to the city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitation. Without inhabitant. Thus God, through the captivity, gave the land the rest and forced the observation of the liberty and forced them to observe the liberty portions of his commands. It is significant that the people of Israel had given themselves over to idolatry and perversion. This was a very perverse time in the history of Israel, and there's some of it. And I think these slides do go online, do they not? Oh, they do, okay. So we won't read through each one of them, but... Uh, <coughs> It shows the progression of perversion of the kings of Israel, the continued ignorance of God's commands to them, and gives a clear and a clear explanation to anybody who would be asking, why did God allow this captivity to happen? They were, they were just radically and regularly disobeying everything they could think of to disobey. So their continued walk in idolatry and perversion caused them to be carried off into captivity for 70 years as prophesied. Their captors, the Babylonians, were among the most evil and perverse who had ever lived and reigned. Such idolatry was never again a serious temptation to Israel after the captivity. Here is the second alleged discrepancy that the critics used to dismiss the book of Daniel as authentic. The dating of 605 B.C. seems to have a conflict in that Jeremiah says the first year of Nebuchadnezzar was the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Jeremiah 25.1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The so-called incongruity is easily explained by the fact that Daniel and Jeremiah used different time renderings. John F. Walvert explains this in his commentary on Daniel. Here it is. Daniel's dating of his exile as 605 B.C. has long been attacked as inaccurate by critics. They point out the apparent conflict between this and the statement of Jeremiah that the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. This supposed chronological area is used as the first in the series of alleged proofs that Daniel is a spurious book written by one unfamiliar with the events of the captivity. There are, however, several good explanations. One explanation is that Daniel is using Babylonian reckoning. The, the discussion in the introduction on Nabonidus and Belteshazzar, that's, a, that's in a different part of this, this commentary, Belshazzar. It was customary for the Babylonians to consider the first year of a king's reign as the year of accession and to call the next year the first year. Finnegan has demonstrated the phrase the first year of Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah actually means the accession year of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian reckoning. Tadmore was among the first to support a solution, and the point may now be considered as well established. Daniel is a most unusual case because of all the prophets, because he of all the prophets was the only one thoroughly instructed in Babylonian culture and point of view. Having spent most of his life in Babylon, it is only natural that Daniel should use a Babylonian form of chronology and date Jehoiakim's reign from his second year. Remember when Daniel wrote this? He had been living in Babylon probably 70 years. And so he had adopted the Babylonian calendar as his method of reckoning. If you don't do that in the place that you're living, you've got to keep three watches, or four, or month books, I guess. 
Having spent most of his life in Babylon, it is only natural that he should use the Babylonian form of chronology and the date and date Jehoiakim's reign from his second year. By contrast, Jeremiah would use Israel's form of reckoning that included a part of the year as the first year of Jehoiakim's reign. This simple explanation is both satisfying and adequate to explain the supposed discrepancy. Two different calendars. Um, if you really want to get mixed up, we all, we have had our calendar changed because people don't like using B.C., before Christ, because that acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's before the current era now, BCE. <laughs> New calendars. The term Shinar was used by the Hebrews to refer to the area the Bab- that Babylon was in, that is Mesopotamia. It had a subtle, this is re- related to your question, Nathel, it had a subtle negative slant in that it referred to places that were hostile to faith. It had direct association to Nimrod. Now, in Genesis 10.8, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. It was the location of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said one to another, Come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. By the way, would you say a tower that reached into heaven was biblical hyperbole? Or do you think that they could have made a tower that went up 250,000 miles out of brick and tar? Was it maybe hyperbole? Okay. Just just observations that sometimes people will object to some of the things Scripture says without looking for the obvious meaning. <clears throat> Zechariah 5.11 uh, Then he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. When it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. So a third supposed con- inconsistency in the mind of liberal critics is that the expression, he brought, he brought, is incorrect because it appears to indicate Daniel and his friends were carried away at this time. The mention of captors is in, is in detail in the following verses. And so there need, there being no need to mention it twice, the obvious solution is that this verse is talking about the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took. This being a natural result of his conquering of the land and wanting to offer homage to his god Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar would have immediately confiscated those items and taken them back to Babylon with him. Again, we find a simple explanation is clearly in the text. So, Verse 2 simply says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Judah. King of Judah gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. He was talking about the vessels, not the youth. Does that not appear obvious? (laughs) I mean, maybe if I read it like this... Okay, we're going to stop there because we went too long. Any questions about verse 2 or anything we've said so far? Yes? So did he? Did Daniel, having lived from a youth into his 80s, did he ever see some of the people returning to Babylon? Um, we will get to that. That's what a guy says when he wants, really wants to say, I don't know. 
Yeah, we will get to that. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to look into your word, to hear from you. And it is you that we want to hear from. And again, we are delighted to be back together to celebrate your son, Lord Jesus Christ. Might we do that with joy and fervor this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.